Well, good morning once again. Uh, my name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the pastor's elders here, and uh, we're going to continue our series through the gospel according to Mark, believe it or not, including this weekend. We just have three more weeks uh, in the book of Mark. Uh, I think it's been about a year with a few breaks um, that we've been going through it. Today's passage is, is Mark chapter 15. And we'll be starting in verse 16 and following. One more time, if you're a guest this morning, uh, we want to extend a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us. Um, You should have received that that bulletin. On the bottom part, there's a connection card. If you wouldn't mind filling that out, take it to the connection center in the back where we'd love to have a little welcome gift for you. Um, Love the opportunity to meet you and explain a a few more things about uh, Missio. So, all right. Mark chapter 15. Verse 16 and following, this is the word of the Lord. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We pray now that you would incline our hearts, open our minds, give us understanding, and satisfy us with your word and with your promises. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My wife is a nurse. My mom is a nurse. My father-in-law is a nurse anesthetist, and so uh, you can imagine that it's not very difficult on either side of, of the families when, when we're around uh, to be talking about something and then immediately, or rather quickly, uh, switch to a topic that has something to do with um, medical jargon and gross medical procedures and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we can be at the dinner table. Uh, we were visiting my in-laws a couple weeks ago. We're at the dinner table. We can 
can be talking about the weather or giving some family updates when all of a sudden we make this switch and we're in the throes of describing some like surgery or some wound care process. Uh, my father-in-law and my in-laws, they were uh, medical missionaries to the jungles of, of Ecuador. And so it, it's also really easy to just get into some gross like jungle insect poison amputation kind of conversation. Like that's, that's every other Tuesday we're talking about that. And, and the reason they do that is because they're in that world. Uh, they're desensitized to it. And yet the rest of us who are not in the world all the time can get pretty squirmy, squeamy, and uh, disgusted fairly quick, especially while you're trying to eat some pasta or a sandwich or something like that. It's not very good lunch or, or dinner talk. Now, it's easy for them to get desensitized because they're in it all the time. If, if you're married to anyone in the medical profession, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's easy for us to get desensitized to things that we're exposed to often. It's easy for us to get desensitized to reality. I mean, we get graphic images thrown at us constantly on Twitter or a news feed or cable news or something like that, where in previous generations, they would be rocked by some of those graphic images. But for us, we pause, we say that's too bad, and we go on with our day. It's also very easy for us to become desensitized to the cross and Christ's suffering and the crucifixion. We see crosses and crucifixes all over the landscape, and we don't tend to pay them any mind. And if we do pay attention to them, we're certainly not moved by them. And yet, as Christians, we must steel ourselves against such desensitization when it comes to the suffering of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and what Christ accomplished on the cross. I mean, what happened to Jesus was, was real. Now, we shouldn't become unhealthily preoccupied with the gore of what happened in Christ's crucifixion, nor should we um, give ourselves over to shallow sentimentalism. But we need to consider the agony the mockery, the humiliation, the shame of what Christ endured. And it shouldn't be a matter of dispassionate interest for us. Because what Christ endured on the cross, including the torture, mockery, humiliation, agony, all of that reveals to us the character of God. What God Himself was willing to endure for sinners like you, and like me. And so this morning, as we take time to consider Christ's crucifixion, let's not allow ourselves to be desensitized to it, but rather let's consider what Christ endured for you and for me. The, the main thought this morning from this passage is that we must see that as Jesus, the King of the Jews, has led to his crucifixion, his suffering involved far more than physical torture, while ironically affirming his true identity. I'll say that again. We must see that as Jesus, the, the king of the Jews, is led to his crucifixion, his suffering involved far more than physical torture, while ironically affirming his true 
identity. So what Mark's going to do here, we've seen it if you've been with us for any length of time. I mean, Mark is just going to present these these snapshots of what's happening in Christ's crucifixion. It's going to be clipped sequences, um, all trying to move us to, to highlight what Christ accomplished on the cross. He doesn't really linger too much on any of the details. He kind of presents it objectively, matter of fact, and move on. It's, it's what Jordan said last week. Um, he was using the illustration of how when we binge watch a show, you know, he and his son, they watch a show and they're ready to move on to the next one. It's what Netflix does. If you're watching a series, you finish an episode, and you barely have enough time to catch your breath regarding what happened in that episode before the prompt comes up in the lower left-hand corner where it says next episode starts in five, four, Four, three, two. That's what Mark's in essence trying to do. It's moving us on to uh, what Christ accomplished on the cross. And yet we're going to linger a little longer on some of these sequences as we consider how the King of the Jews, Jesus, how he was mocked and humiliated by the soldiers. We're going to see the King of the Jews on the cross, and we're going to see the King of Israel, the Christ, once again being mocked, this time by bystanders and chief priests and scribes and those who were crucified with him. So, first of all, the king of the Jews, he's mocked by the soldiers. Verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Remember the context, Uh, up until this point, Jesus has already suffered greatly. Mark tells us that he was greatly distressed and troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was physically struck in the high priest's presence. He was denied by Peter. He was interrogated. He was sentenced to death. And now that the death sentence, that verdict has been given, now the crucifixion process has been given. So he's, he's handed over to the soldiers and their care, most likely a segment of the battalion. And it's in that context, the soldiers are with him, and we see the mockery. Verse 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. So here we see Jesus with the soldiers, and they they clothe him in this purple cloak, purple being the most expensive and prestigious of ancient dyes, something a a king would wear, a, a purple cloak. It symbolized royalty. And then they twist together this this painful crown of thorns force it on his head. The, the robe, it, uh, as I mentioned, it symbolized royalty. The crown generally would present someone of, of military valor or might. And as they're doing this, putting the robe on him, putting the crown on him, and then saying, Hail, King of the Jews, in mocking fashion, it's all uh, intended to imitate what they would do for Caesar. 
Hail, Caesar Emperor, they would say. And oftentimes, uh, Caesar would come in, and, and in a Roman triumph, he'd be wearing a purple cloak, and he would be uh, wearing a laurel wreath. And so, the rationale of the soldiers is, is that if this man thinks he's a king, or if other wanna, others want to paint him as a king, uh, let's give him a royal welcome. Only they do it derisively, sarcastically, mockingly. And as they're hailing him as king of the Jews, it moves from from mockery and, and some physical pain to just outright beatings. Verse 19, and they, uh, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. So you see this progression while Jesus is in the soldier's care. Mockery, crown of thorns, to now outright violence and abuse. It says they were striking his head with a reed. More than likely that reed was a staff that they had given Jesus to, to give this pretend king as they were mocking him. Now they take that reed or that staff back and they strike his head with it. And then they were spitting on him. And the way this phrase is written in the Greek, uh, it signifies repetition. They're striking him again and again and again, spitting on him again and again again. Blow to the head. Blow to the head. Blow to the head. Spit, 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 spit. In most cultures, there's, there's nothing more dehumanizing and spit right in the face, cross-culturally. It's a, it's a form of disdain, ill intent, hatred. As they're doing that, then they kneel down before him in order to pay homage to the king. Then it says they, they stripped him of the purple cloak, certainly not going to allow him to wear that to the crucifixion site. And it's interesting that they put his own clothes on him because often when uh, victims who were about to be crucified were being led to the crucifixion site, that, that was often, uh, they were in the nude, they were naked. I don't know why they put the clothes back on him. Possibly, uh, this was the Romans being sensitive to um, Jewish sensibilities regarding nudity. But they put his clothes on him, and as this is going on, you see Jesus enduring shame and mockery for the sake of sinners. Also last week, Jordan read Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant passage, a well-known passage. And as Jesus is enduring the physical beatings and humiliation, it Makes you think of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, also describing a suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. And Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So the king of the Jews, Jesus, he endures the mockery of the soldiers, and now we're going to see the king of Jews 
enduring the crucifixion. The last eight words of verse 20 says, and they led him out to crucify him. That's what Mark gives us. And they led him out to crucify him. Mark just says it, matter of fact, clear objectivity, no trace of playing on the reader's emotions. Mark announces the crucifixion, and they led him out to crucify him. Cicero said crucifixion was the most cruel and horrifying punishment. I mean, this was Rome's way of inflicting the most pain and the most humiliation on who they declared guilty. Usually, crucifixions happened outside city walls, so they would have to lead him out to crucify him. The Romans tended to crucify the guilty along roads as a, really as a road sign, as a warning sign to anyone who would even consider committing the crime that this crucified victim committed. Quintilian wrote that whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of low. Slaves, violent criminals, and revolutionaries, prisoners of war. Now, depending on the severity of the flogging beforehand, we saw last week Jesus was indeed flogged. Uh, It took a long time to die when one was being crucified. Since no major arteries were severed, one wouldn't die from blood loss. Rather, they would often die from shock or exhaustion, asphyxia, or heart failure, some combination of all of these. I mean, it was a ghastly form of death. Prolonged, excruciatingly painful, and socially dehumanizing. And the thought that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, could suffer a cross of shame, it was so scandalous that some 25 odd years later, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, I mean, he confessed that the preaching of a crucified Messiah This was a stumbling block to the Jews, and it was foolishness to Gentiles. And here we are in Mark. Mark is presenting this without sensationalism or without sentimentality. He states it matter of fact, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, then this happened, all to emphasize what Christ accomplished on the cross. Or as one commentator said, in the death of Jesus of Nazareth, God himself identified with the extreme of human wretchedness, which Jesus endured as a representative of us all in order to bring us the freedom of the children of God. Quote Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Then verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Crucifixion victims would normally carry the um, wooden crossbeam in the middle to the execution site, and then that crossbeam would be fixed to the vertical part that often remained at the site. John tells us that Jesus was carrying that, but was so exhausted that he kept falling down. So, Mark tells us that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Compulsory service was a pretty common thing in uh, Roman-occupied territory. Uh, People in the military could take any civilian and ask them to accomplish uh, menial tasks. This is what's happening here. Now, this is a lot of detail for Mark, who doesn't spend a lot of time on detail. He names Simon. He says where he's from. He says what he was doing. He names his children. So, this is important. Uh, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was in North Africa, and uh, there's a large Jewish population there. He's coming in from the country. Maybe Simon's visiting for Passover. Maybe he was just doing some business out in the country and coming in early in the morning. Names his children, Alexander and Rufus. Now, we don't know who Alexander is, but Rufus is, there's a Rufus mentioned in Romans chapter 16. Mark's writing to a Roman audience, so he's making a connection for his original readers. He said, you might not know Simon, but you probably know Alexander and Rufus, his children. So, what we see here is Simon of Cyrene becomes the first person to take up his cross and literally does so for the king of the Jews. And as they do that, verse 22 says, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, if you've heard um, the phrase Uh, Christ was crucified on Calvary. That name Calvary, that word, is the Latin version of place of a skull. Golgotha, Calvary, place of a skull. Now, some say it was called place of a skull because that's where executions were held. Others say that was the shape of a hill. There's really two main thoughts as to where that is. The majority opinion uh, of where it's located now has a church there today where they believe the execution site happened, which now, as, as Jerusalem has expanded, is actually within the city walls of Jerusalem. But at this time, it was outside the city walls. Verse 23 says, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, um, Oftentimes, as an act of mercy, condemned prisoners were, were given wine mixed with myrrh in order to dull their pain. Uh, myrrh was like a narcotic, um, you know, like a ibuprofen times 10, something like that, to just dull the pain and the suffering. Now, others dispute that, and they say, no, that's not what the soldiers were doing. They were just giving him some wine, or, or actually they were continuing the mockery. Don't exactly know. The text doesn't tell us. What we do know is that Jesus refused it. Did he refuse it because he didn't want his senses to be dulled? Maybe. Maybe he refused it because of what he said in Mark 14 at the Last Supper. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new and in the kingdom of God. Regardless, they offer it to him and he does not take it. Verse 24, and they crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
It was a common practice for executioners to divide the meager possessions of these criminals, much like an invading army splitting the plunder of a city that they ransack or defeat. Casting lots for them, most likely it's a game of dice that they're playing in order to figure out who's going to get what of Jesus's. Now, it's interesting and intentional that Mark phrases it this way. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. As this a, as a reference, it's a fulfillment from Psalm 22, verse 18, which reads, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What Mark's doing here in, in chapter 15, there's going to be three allusions or references to Psalm 22. Two in our passage and one in next week's passage. Psalm 22, the context of this, is a suffering, righteous man. Psalm 22, there's this righteous man who's suffering, and Mark is connecting Jesus with the suffering righteous man. He was a righteous man uh, without comparison. I mean, he was the righteous man of righteous men. And by alluding to this, that they're casting lots for his garments among them, Mark is portraying, he's presenting Jesus as the suffering righteous man. Uh, Last week, uh, we have a seven-year-old getting ready to go into second grade, five-year-old getting ready to go into kindergarten. And uh, so they're in Missio Kids. And uh, each week when parents pick up kids, particularly in preschool and elementary school, everyone should get this, um, this summary of what the lesson was taught. And so usually our family will take this and we'll uh, debrief what our kids learned um, in Missio Kids, uh, usually lunchtime on Sunday or dinner time. If that doesn't happen, then we'll carry it over into Monday. But we'll have some type of family discussion over a meal about what they learned about. And last week, uh, in Missio Kids, they were talking about Israel's first king, a king for Israel, and they're talking about King Saul. And, and on the, the right-hand portion there, they, I know you can't read this, but you can see the layout here, they, um, they summarize what the kids were taught. And so, it tells us that the, the key, the God's people wanted a king like the people around them. God chose Saul to be the king. King Saul disobeyed God. God decided to make someone else king. It gives you a passage. It gives you, you know, their, their main idea. And then there's these family discussion starters, which are just gold for us as we're processing this as a family most weeks. And so some of them are what made Saul a bad king and, um, you know, why uh, was asking for a king a good idea or a bad idea? But then this question, this is, this is going to connect, don't worry. And this question, how is Jesus a better king then Saul, you know, you throw that out there to a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and my, my daughter, Sophia, who's seven, uh, she starts answering it. How is Jesus a better king than Saul? Well, Jesus is nicer. Jesus is stronger. He's a bit more powerful. He's God's son. Saul's not God's son. It's like, yep, those are all, all good things. But the point is trying to get across, and it tells you over here, is that when Saul was disobedient to God, Jesus did everything God wanted to do, wanted him to do. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. 
And one of the things I like about the curriculum we use is that it's always pointing you back to the gospel, what, what Christ has accomplished. And um, Old Testament, New Testament is pointing to Jesus as our redeemer. So you think about that. I mean, King Saul disobeys God, the unrighteous king. But Jesus, the righteous man from Psalm 22, in, in perfection, is the righteous, suffering king. And the next verse tells us the charge, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Right there for all to see, that's the charge, king of the Jews. King of the Jews connected with suffering, righteous man. And he's righteous because he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. And in that, he also takes on the wrath of God that you and I deserve who do not perfectly obey God, who do not perfectly live as those who are righteous. Now, that inscription, the king of the Jews, John tells us that the Jews did not like that. They urged and repeatedly asked um, Pilate to change it, to say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate, uh, he wouldn't change it. In fact, his answer was, what I have written I have written, or another way to say it, what I have written will always remain written. Now, here we see this sign, the king of the Jews unwittingly heralding this eternal truth, his royal title fixed to the cross, and they're not allowed to remove it, that, that title, King of the Jews. So considering this, I, I couldn't help but think of this passage in Revelation 19 where other titles or names of Jesus are mentioned. Now, in Mark 15, we see the king nailed to a cross. In Revelation 19, we see a king coming and conquering we're reminded of some of his other titles in addition to king of the Jews. Revelation 19, 12 and following says, His eyes, speaking of Jesus, are like flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed, here's a robe, in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. The cross reveals Jesus' lordship. 
Ironically, as they're mocking him with this inscription, we know that the same king that is on the cross is the conquering king. And he's not just the, the, the king that is the king of the Jews only. I mean, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And though he looks in this moment in Mark 15 as weak and helpless, he is in fact in this moment ruling and reigning and seated at the right hand of the Father, for he has declared it is finished. Lastly, the king of Israel, Christ, while he's nailed on the cross, is, is mocked. Verse 27 tells us that, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. That phrase robbers could, means, could mean a, a common thief, or it could also mean a, a revolutionary, a nationalist guerrilla. And it tells us that the one on his right and one on his left is crucified there. Mark doesn't get into what Luke says about one of them being repentant. He just kind of names it matter of fact. But, but the language he uses, one on his right, one on his left, is, is to draw to mind what Jesus says in Mark 10 where his disciples asked to sit on his right hand or his left hand. And Jesus says, no, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Framing it, you know, the type of suffering Jesus says that I'm going to endure, you, you don't have a framework for that right now. You're not prepared for that. And then this section ends just like it began with mockery. It says, and those who passed by, this is verse 29, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. You know, now we have these nondescript bystanders who, who come up, they say, ah, you know, it's a term of astonishment. Like this guy who was making all these claims, now look at the position he finds himself in. He even said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Not looking so powerful now, are you? Save yourself. Then maybe we'll believe some of your claims. Come down from the cross. It says that they derided him. That, that word deride, it, it, it's the word for blaspheme. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word for blaspheme is almost exclusively used to communicate evil speech against God. So ironically, you know, this crowd, Jesus is the one who's accused of blaspheming God. Now the crowd and the religious leaders, they're actually blaspheming the Son of God. They're deriding him in the process. They are guilty of the very crime in which they tried or did crucify Jesus for. Once again, this is another allusion to Psalm 22, the suffering righteous man. Verse 7 that says they hurled insults and they were shaking their heads. The character of the crowd in Mark, particularly here at the end, the same crowd who screams, Hosanna, Hosanna, and was screaming, crucify him, crucify him, in last week's passage, now, think, save yourself, come down from that cross. And then in verse 31, so also, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, notice this concession, he saved others but he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those robbers, even the robbers, revile him. Like they can't believe that they're even associated with the king of the Jews. Now, the mockers, I mean, they don't see, they don't have eyes to see. That Jesus, by staying on the cross, is indeed fulfilling the role of Christ. They think by him saying there that it's an indication of weakness, powerlessness, uh, a puny man proclaiming to be God. He's just a liar. He deceived himself. You know, in Jesus' own words, from John chapter 10, verse 14 and following, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus had the power to come down from the cross. It wasn't weakness that kept him there, but his own desire to accomplish the purposes of God by being our substitute, absorbing the righteous wrath of God, that you and I would have opportunity for all who trust in Him and shelter under the blood of the Lamb to be reconciled to our Creator. So they conclude, as they're mocking Him, that the only way that He's really the Christ is if He comes down from the cross. They didn't realize that Christ needed to stay on the cross. And the sign that they demanded, they say, let the King of Israel, the Christ, come down now. Notice the urgency there. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Expressing interest, some type of desire to totally miss it. And as they're demanding the sign of God that they may see and believe, it is very easy for us to look at God and demand a sign that more fits, our, fits more our way than God's way. I mean, you see the contrast here. Man's way, how man defines strength versus how God defines strength. How man defines power versus how God defines power. How man defines victory over and against how God defines victory. How man defines salvation over and against how God defines salvation. And, and so often we can fall into that temptation of demanding something from God. If only God would... Get me that promotion. 
If only God would, would take away this illness. If only God would work on this character flaw in my spouse. If, if only God would help my kids obey. If only God would give me the job that I want. If only God would give me the house that I want. If only God would give me the car that I want. If only God would um, relieve me of this financial pressure. Then he's really God. Then he's worthy of my love. Then he's worthy of my affection. Then he's worthy to be prayed. And yet God has demonstrated on the cross his love, his compassion, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his strength, his salvation for all who call on the name of Jesus. And he's given us everything we need in Christ. Uh, Paul tells Ephesians 1, he's given us everything we need in Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing. He's shown us that he truly is God by laying down his life as a ransom for us. So the cross affirms Jesus' true identity. Let's not view him as weak, but powerful enough, holy enough, righteous enough to be our substitute. Let's not reject this king like the passerbys and the scribes and the chief priests and the robbers and the soldiers, but rather let's see the suffering, righteous, messianic king as who he really is. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. Let's not mock our Savior with the way we live our lives. Let's not live a life of derision towards him. Let's not mock him by how we prioritize our days or our time or our finances, or how we prioritize our reputation in the eyes of others over and above obedience and faithfulness to God. Let's die to sin and live to righteousness. And let's protect ourselves from being desensitized to the message of the cross, the ministry of the cross. Let's be moved with great affection for our Lord who absorbed our punishment, and, and let's be a people who, if we're in Christ, let's rejoice over what Christ endured for people like you and people like me. And let's rejoice in what God has ushered in through Jesus Christ that we, for all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, are counted as heirs of the throne, children of God, 
We're declared righteous. We're his sons. And we're his daughters. So let's rejoice in what Christ has done on the cross as we've considered that suffering, that degradation, that humiliation for our sake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have been reconciled to you by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. A passage that um, is heavy as we consider the crucifixion, I pray that it wouldn't be business as usual. I pray that we would not be desensitized to it, but that we would consider you and the hostility that you endured Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for this truth this morning, and we pray that as we continue to worship and then go from this place, that for those who have not trusted in you, that they would consider your claims and what you've accomplished as the King of kings and Lord of lords. For those of us that are in you, that we would continue to live faithful lives of worship. We love you, Lord, and it's in your Son's name that we pray together. Amen.